0: What's up, guys? I'm Jared Lopes, and you're listening to the Dad Tired Podcast, where I'm helping everyday families learn how to follow Jesus in everyday life. Early on in Scripture, we get a glimpse of how the world was originally designed and intended to be. If you could imagine the perfect world, no sickness, no pain, no relational friction, we get a glimpse of that in scripture. God creates the heavens and the earth, the stars, the skies, the waters, the mountains, fish and birds and wild animals, and he creates all of it and he says, that's good. But then he creates humans and he says, that's really good. And relationship between God and humanity is perfect. There's no shame. There's no guilt. So the Bible says that God walks with his people in the cool of the day. He's just with them, and it's perfect. It's exactly as God designed it to be. In a relationship between man and man or man and woman, humanity was perfect. There was no friction. There was no shame. There was no guilt. Everything was exactly as it was designed to be. But we see, if you know anything about your Bible, that... This doesn't last for very long. In fact, we take a pretty hard, radical turn very, very early on in Scripture. I mean, in my Bible, I only get one page deep where the story goes terribly wrong, where man and woman, Adam and Eve, make the same decision that you and I make all the time. They decided to turn their backs against God. They said, I wonder if there's something more for me than what God has. I wonder if I would make a better God than God. I wonder if God's holding out on me. And they turn their backs on God's design. It's called sin. They turn away from God and the way God designed things to be. And as a result, they put this huge gap, this friction between a holy, perfect, just, righteous God and now a broken, rebellious, wicked, sinful humanity. There's a gap. And God, if he were like us, should have left. I've said this a million times. The Bible should just be one page long. Tried humanity, that failed. We'll go try somewhere else. But God doesn't. In the very beginning of scripture, we see God say, I've got a plan to win everything back to me all of creation, all of humanity, I am going to make a plan where all my children and everything will be reconciled, will come back to me, back to the way it was designed to be. And if you've ever wondered, what's the Bible all about? The whole rest of scripture is that story. God redeeming people, reconciling people, bringing his children in all of humanity and all of creation back to the way it was designed to be. The Bible is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our generation. It's not about our culture. It's not about this church. It's not some good principles to live your life by. It's not some tips to help you succeed at work. The Bible is about God. Specifically about Jesus Christ redeeming everything back to the way it was designed to be. It's good news. And God, originally we see him start to work with individuals. Very early on in scripture, he's kind of working one-on-one. But then he starts to pull a whole nation together called the Israelites and he says, in the midst of this broken and rebellious world where people are doing their own things and people are being sinful and, and, and choosing to be their own gods, in the midst of all that, I want you, Israel, the nation, to show all of the world what God people are like. I want you to represent me to the whole broken world. I'm going to set you aside and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to tell you to live differently so that the rest of the world will see what God people are like. And they get it sometimes. Their their story looks so much like our story. Sometimes they get it and they're faithful. Most of the time they don't get it. It's just a roller coaster watching them. They're all over the map. But God says, I want to set you aside. I want to use you. I I want you to be my people. And we saw the last couple of weeks, right? God takes this Israel, this nation, out of slavery from Egypt. And he says, I'm going to take you to a better land called the promised land. And Bill and Marty talked about this the last two weeks. We can find ourselves being obedient to God and yet find ourselves in the middle of the desert. Following God does not mean it's all rainbows and butterflies. These people found themselves in the desert. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They were scared. And so God didn't say everything's going to go awesome, but he did say, I'll be with you. They didn't know where they were going, but they knew who they were going with. And that promise was good enough. That could be a whole other message. God would say the same for us. None of us in this room have any idea what tomorrow holds. But if we serve Jesus, at least we get to know who we're going with. Praise God. Right? And that's what God said. You don't know where you're going. I know. I'm taking the promised land. This is going to be a long journey, but you know who you're going with. Now, that's good news. It's good news that God was dwelling among them. He said, literally, I'm going to put my presence and lead them. He was like a cloud, just leading him. His very presence was leading the Israel nation to the promised land. That's good news, but it's also kind of scary news. What I mean by that, there's one portion in scripture in this, in this part where he's leading the Israelites to the promised land, where God goes to address the people, and they freak out a little bit. And they say, Moses, you go talk to God for us. Go up on the hill and talk to God. Because there's this sense that when God gets really close to us, it starts to expose kind of the darker areas of our lives. When we're faced and are in the presence of a holy and perfect God, we start to quickly realize that we're not holy and perfect. And so the Israelites said, please, go advocate for us. Go represent us. We need somebody to speak on our behalf because we don't want to address God. We've got too much junk. The Israelites knew this was a problem, and God knew it was a problem. So he instituted what's called the priesthood. And the priesthood was this. You have God, holy, righteous, perfect, just. He always does the right thing. Merciful, gracious, perfect God. And you have broken, sinful, rebellious, wicked, dirty humanity. And there's a gap in between. And the priest's role was to mediate on behalf of the two parties. A priest would take all the sacrifices of the people and offer them to God. He would pray for the people. He would advocate for the people. He would represent the people. And every time Israel would sin individually if if you were an Israelite and you sinned you would have to offer some type of sacrifice as an atonement or the word literally means cover to cover up your sin you would have to give something a sacrifice something in order to cover up your sin. Now, if you're new to church, like if you've grown up in church, you've maybe heard of sacrifices and animal sacrifices. If you're new to church, that could sound really bizarre and weird. Like, why are we killing animals all of a sudden? That just doesn't seem right. But we get that all the way at the very beginning of the story. If you rewind back to the very first scene of scripture, humanity, Adam and Eve, God said, if you follow my plan, You'll have life abundantly and eternally. You will forever live, and it will be good. But if you don't, and you can choose not to if you want, but if you choose to go against my design, that's called sin. And the wages of sin, the penalty of sin, the consequence of sin is death. And we see Adam and Eve choose against God's design. They turn their backs on God. And God had every right, He could have right then just jolted down lightning and said, I told you, wages of sin is death. You're done. But he doesn't. God, in his very grace, we see Adam and Eve sin and they start to feel shameful. They're naked in front of each other. The first time they realize they're naked and there's shame and there's guilt. And so what does God do? In his grace, he takes an innocent animal. He sacrifices it. He takes the coverings of the animal and he covers them. He makes clothes. He covers the sin of Adam and Eve. It's the first time we see innocent blood shed for a guilty party. And it's symbolic. The symbolism is that a guilty human is taking on the innocence of the animal. And the animal is taking on the guilt of the human it's symbolic and we start to see it all throughout scripture people making sacrifices to exchange their guilt for the sin or their their sin for the innocence of the animal so if you're an Israelite and you're sinning day to day you're constantly throughout the year having to make sacrifices to cover up to transfer innocence onto your life. That, for me personally, would stop me from wanting to sin because I'm queasy, I don't like blood, I faint when I see blood, so like having to slit a dove's throat, no thanks, I'd rather not sin, but they're constantly in sin, so they're constantly having to sacrifice. Now, the priest's role would be to offer the sacrifices in the temple for the people to cover their sin. I know I'm giving you a lot of history here. Hang with me, okay? Take another drink of coffee, hang in. We're going to get there. Once a year, there was an event called Yom Kippur, which translated means the Day of Atonement. In the Israelite camp was what was called the Tabernacle. I know I'm using a lot of churchy words here. Hang in. There was something called the Tabernacle. And the Tabernacle had a couple different parts to it. But the most inner part of the Tabernacle was called the Holy of Holies. This is where God himself literally dwelled. His presence was among them in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. Nobody was allowed to go in there. It was too holy except one person, the high priest, and only one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and would offer sacrifices for all the Israelites, for all their sins for that last year is a really big, somber deal. All of the nation of Israel would gather around and watch their representative atone for their sins for that last year. They would always atone for their individual sins, but now it was a big event where they'd cover the whole nation for the whole year. So one week before Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, the priest would remove himself from the people. He would kind of go off a little bit. And the reason he would do that is so that he would start to spiritually, emotionally, physically cleanse himself. He didn't want to be around diseased people or dirty people. He he would go through ceremonies to start to bathe himself and clean himself in a certain way that he would present himself pure. He had certain garments that he would wear. There was only a certain type of food he would eat. He wouldn't eat other types of food in order to stay clean and pure. He's emotionally and spiritually and physically preparing himself to enter into the Holy of Holies. And this was a big deal. God's presence, the Holy of Holies, was so pure and perfect and right that if you weren't clean, if you didn't go through the cleansing ceremonies, if you weren't serious about this, And you walked in there, you could die. And Israelites did die for not taking it serious. They would actually tie a rope around the high priest's leg so that when he went in there to offer the sacrifices, if he was unclean or he did not cleanse himself properly and he died, they would pull him out by the leg with the rope so that they wouldn't have to risk their own life going in to save him. It was a serious, really, really big deal. One week before, he's preparing himself spiritually, emotionally, physically to go into the most holy place to represent the people and to represent them well, to atone for all the sins of the last year. The night before Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the high priest would stay up all night praying as his last way to prepare himself to go into the holy of holies. Now, are we hanging in? I know I'm giving a lot of history here. We okay? Okay. So on Yom Kippur, the priest would wake up. Well, he, he wouldn't have gone to sleep that night. He would have stayed up all night. But the people would wake up and they would gather around for this event. And they would watch the high priest. The high priest would wear a white robe with no blemish, no spot. He would walk into the Holy of Holies and he would offer an animal sacrifice on behalf of his sin and the sins of his family. Okay? If God accepted this, If it was pure, if he was clean enough, he would come out, all of Israel's watching. He'd get behind a thin curtain, he'd take off the robe, he would bathe himself, clean himself, go through another cleansing ceremony, put on another white robe, walk back into the Holy of Holies, offer another sacrifice, this time on behalf of all the priests. Remember, he's the high priest representing all the other priests. If God accepted that, if he was clean enough and pure enough, he would come back out, bathe himself, take off that robe, go through another cleansing ritual, put on another white robe, walk back into the Holy of Holies a third time, offer atonement, represent the people for all the sins, for all the Israelites for that past year. And they would be on the edge of their seat. Is the high priest clean enough? Did he do the right things? Did he cleanse himself? Is he without blemish? Is his robe white enough? Because their only hope of being able to be in the presence of God, to continue to be led by God, was in their high priest representing them well. This would have been a really serious moment for them. And they did this year after year after year after year. Eventually, Israel had high priests representing them and kings. Israel was known as a nation of kings and priests. These were their leaders. We start to see in Scripture that their representatives, the ones advocating for them, start to take a turn for the worse. Open in your Bibles with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. Or should I say, turn on your Bibles and scroll with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. Uh, Jeremiah. We're not always in Jeremiah. It can be an obscure book, Uh, so it's in page twelve ten in that hardback book, the Bible in front of you. Twelve ten is the page number that that's on. If you're new to studying the Bible, if you're not very familiar with like opening a Bible, that's okay. the The name of the book is on the top of the page. The chapter is the big numbers, and then the verses are the little numbers within the text. So we're in the book of Jeremiah. The chapter is twenty three, which will be the big numbers. And then the small numbers indicate which verse we're in. We're going to start in verse 1 in chapter 23 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophecy, so God is speaking to people through Jeremiah. And he says this, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch. Literally, that translation is sprout, meaning it's going to seem small, but it's going to turn into something huge. I will raise up a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In the days, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness or Yahweh said Kenu. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, we see this kind of language early on. Flip over with me to Zechariah chapter three. It's, a, it's just a little bit to your right. Uh, Again, it's a small book. That's on page 1474 of those hardbacks in front of you. 1474. Jeremiah just said, listen, you've got priests. You've got kings representing you. They're not representing you well, but one's coming who will represent you well. Zechariah chapter 3. Now listen, before we get into this passage, I need you to go back to the day of atonement mentally with me, okay? Here's the scene In Zechariah 3, we are in the Holy of Holies. Picture yourself as an observer. You are in the Holy of Holies. There is a high priest there named Joshua. He's the high priest representing the people. There's God, the angel of the Lord, which some say could be Jesus, but we don't know that for sure. So we have God, the angel of the Lord, and Satan. And it's like a courtroom scene happening within the Holy of Holies. This is the picture, picture Day of Atonement, picture the high priest, Yom Kippur. Keep that in your mind as we read Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Catch this next verse, it's huge. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. What? Joshua is dressed in filthy clothes? Could you imagine what the listeners would have thought as they heard this vision? What? This is our high priest. This is our representative. This is the guy that's supposed to advocate for us to atone for. He's the best we've got. He's our only chance of being in the presence of God, and he's filthy. The translation literally is he's covered in human feces, he's defiled. He is filthy before God. How could this have happened? What? Our only hope for being in the presence of God is in Joshua. He's our guy. And he's filthy? I mean, this, no way. He should have had a week to prepare. The people of Israel would have st- stood around and watched to make sure he was clean before he went in to represent us well. And Zechariah says, I have this vision of Joshua the high priest and he's standing before God and he's filthy. Let's keep reading. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see I have taken away your sin. I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk, will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest, Joshua, and your associates sit seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch, See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in one single day. Could you imagine the mix of emotions that the Israelites are going through? Our representative, our guy, our hope for being in the presence of God is not good enough. He's not clean enough. He is filthy. He's covered. And yet you're saying that there's going to be one who's coming, this branch. Is it next week? Is it next month? Is it next year? Because our only hope to be in the presence of God is to have somebody advocate for us. Somebody that will speak on our behalf. So when is he coming? Quickly, very shortly after Zechariah, we see silence. No more prophecies, no more miracles. God doesn't speak, God doesn't do any crazy visions. We just have silence. Could you imagine the turmoil? Who is going to represent us? Who is going to speak on our behalf? Who is going to advocate for us? The New Testament starts with this guy named John, and he's preparing the way for Jesus to come. He's baptizing people, and he's preparing people's hearts for Jesus. And as he's baptizing people, they call him John the Baptist, he sees Jesus off in the distance, and Jesus is walking towards him, and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Who comes to take away the sins of the world? What? A human? It's going to be a sacrifice. We've we've sacrificed animals, but a, a human for the sins of the world? What is John saying? This is priest-like talk. A little bit later in scripture, we see Jesus teaching and healing and he's doing his ministry and a couple friends bring their paralyzed friend to be healed by Jesus and they can't get into the house that he's in because it's too crowded. So they cut a hole in the roof and they lower their paralyzed friend down through the roof and Jesus sees the guy and he's impressed. Like, man, you guys have a lot of faith. This is impressive. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. The guy didn't come to get his sins forgiven. The guy came to get healed. What human has the authority to forgive sins? Priests. Jesus wasn't a priest. He didn't come from the right family. Why is Jesus talking priestly talk? This made the religious leaders upset. Like, you're not a priest. So are you saying you're God? Jesus is Talking like he is some type of priest. He's going around with priestly-like language. One week before Jesus is crucified, we see him actually start to separate more and more from people. He becomes closer with his disciples. He doesn't throw bigger events or bigger rallies. He actually starts to seclude more and more with his disciples. The night before Jesus is arrested, before he's put on a cross, he stays up all night praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, much like a high priest would have prayed before he went into the Holy of Holies. They end up arresting Jesus, and they beat him, and they bathe him with spit. And this time they gather around and watch and mock and yell, crucify him. And Jesus gets up on the cross, and he's crushed. He's beaten. He's mocked. And he dies. Jesus says, I will be your high priest. I will advocate for you. I will go into the holy of holies, the most holy place. And I'm not going to offer a bull or a goat or a ram or a dove. I'm going to offer myself. Not for the sins of one country, one nation for one year, but for the sins of all people for all time. I will be your high priest. This would have been really good news to the Israelites. Finally, somebody that can represent us well. The last time they heard of Joshua was the Zechariah's vision of Joshua filled, covered in feces, standing before God, dirty, not representing them well. Jesus is the English translation. We, We use the word Jesus. They would have called him Yeshua or Joshua. The next time we see a Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, acting as high priest, he's actually clean and representing the people well. This would have been good news for them. The thing is, it's good news for us. We don't have priest-like culture, right? You guys don't come in here with your goats ready to sacrifice. But aren't we all trying to advocate for ourselves? I mean, All of us know what it's like to put our heads down on the pillow or maybe we're driving, maybe we're somewhere alone and we have this realization that who we really are, when we're faced with who we really are, it's not quite good enough. We know this. Every single one of us knows this. Our true self, when we're faced with the reality of our true self, we know that we come up short, that we're actually messed up. And we try to fill that gap between a perfect, holy, righteous, good God and a broken self. We try to fill it with something. Wherever you're at on your spiritual journey in the spiritual spectrum of your life, all of us are trying to fill that gap to convince ourselves that we're good enough, that we're clean, to convince those around us that we're good enough, that we're clean, to convince God we're good enough and we're clean. We all do this, whether it's maybe if I dress a certain way, people will think I'm clean, I'm righteous, I'm, I've got it together. Maybe if I had the right job or I went to the right school or if I talk a certain way or if I like this music or if I marry this person or if my paycheck looks this big or I drive this kind of car or I marry into this family or I have this color skin or born into this country, maybe I can convince people that I'm good, that I've got something, Maybe I can convince those around me that I'm I'm clean. Maybe I can convince God one day that I'm a pretty moral person. I go to church, and we we try to convince ourselves and those around us and God that we've got it together. The reality is this. The best of us in this room, the, the most righteous among us, would stand before God like Joshua, and we would be filthy. Every single one of us, despite our good works and how good we think we are, would stand before God and we would be covered. And the truth is, every moment of every day, Satan stands ready to accuse you, to say, look at their guilt, look how much they sin, look at their gossip, look at their twisted thoughts, look at their deceitful heart, look at the way they treat each other. God, are you looking at these? They're filthy. The best among them are filthy. And we have no defense. We are guilty. We are filthy in the presence of a holy and perfect and just God. And just as we start to hang our head and start to feel overwhelmed with guilt and shame because we recognize the sin in us, We hear our high priest say, no, stop. I've pulled that one out from the fire. I've taken off of his dirty clothes and I've clothed him in righteousness. We have a high priest, one who can actually advocate for us one who stands in the holy of holies and says no i've snatched that one out of the fire i've taken off his filthy robe and i've put on a clean robe i call that one my son and daughter i have transferred my innocence onto his guilt amen man don't get so caught up you guys we can't come to church week after week after week and get numb this is amazing. The perfect, spotless priest. We have an advocate. Hebrew says, day and night for all eternity. Jesus sits at the right hand telling the Father how righteous you are. What? Not because you're moral or because you come to church enough or because your life looks good. You are righteous in the eyes of the Father because we have a high priest who represents us well. That's good news. Friends, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've done nothing to earn or deserve grace, but he has given it to you. Praise God. I wish I had two more hours or three more weeks because we're just scratching the surface here, but... Listen, there's some of you in this room today who would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're skeptical. Listen, when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I'm the only way to get to God, he's not giving you bad news. He's giving you good news. He's saying, despite how good you think you are, when you stand in front of God one day, you're going to be covered in filth. Every one of us in this room will be covered in filth. And it's only if we have our faith in a high priest that we will get to stand before a holy and righteous God. And I beg you, would you today surrender? Stop trying to advocate for yourself because you won't be good enough. And will you trust that there's a high priest who wants to advocate for you? He's already paid the sacrifice, not for a year, not for some sins, but for all sins for all time. And would you trust Jesus as your high priest today? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.